Liminal Spaces was a six-year, welcome-funded project at Edinburgh Law School which scrutinized regulatory systems that support human health research. The vision of the project was to deliver the first-ever integrated, interdisciplinary, and cross-cutting analysis of health research regulation by confronting the gaps between documented law, relevant ethical and social theories and concepts, and research practice. To mark the end of the project in March 2021, the principal investigator, Professor Graham Laurie, sat down with members of the Liminal Spaces team to discuss their research findings. Hello and welcome to this podcast on the relevance of identity interests in the regulation of the uses of bioinformation. My name is Grim Laurie, Principal Investigator of the Liminal Spaces Project, and I'm very pleased to be joined by one of my colleagues, Emily Poston, who's been looking at this topic, drawing on her expertise as a bioethicist. Welcome, Emily. Hello, Graham. It's lovely to be here talking to you. It's lovely to talk to you. So as a first question, can you uh, tell us um, how do you see the research problem uh, that you've been looking into, namely, what is it about bioinformation that has implications for our own identities? Okay, I might start by saying very quickly what I mean by bioinformation here, or what I, I think you mean in your question. Um, so when I've been conducting my research, I've used this phrase, but it's not meant to be anything special or anything mysterious. It's supposed to be a really big inclusive term for any information that might be generated in, yes, in health research, but also in clinical care or by, for example, use of medical devices to include information about our bodies, our biology, how they work and our biological relationships to other people as well. So it's kind of really broad and inclusive. So it's results from genetic testing, maybe it's findings from maybe whole body imaging and also kind of information that's generated by the crunching of really big health data using uh, kind of machine learning and algorithms as well. So it's it's just information about us as biological fleshy, fleshy beings. Identity also uh, could be understood in myriad ways and you'll get as many definitions and answers as people you ask what what they mean by identity and there's big disciplinary differences here as well so um kind of trying to keep it simple i think the most familiar um sense in which we talk about identity when we're thinking about biodata and bioinformation is this idea of identifiable information that that can be pinned to a particular person or that which picks a particular person out of a crowd and that's kind of relevant to what I'm talking about but not kind of bullseye relevant um and then we've got the kind of maybe the next most familiar sense um which is the way in which um other people use information about us to make judgments about us or to kind of characterize us and that's both kind of positive uses to make maybe uh, healthcare decisions about us, but also ones that we're more concerned and troubled by kind of discriminatory uses and um, ways to exclude or oppress people, depending on how we characterize them. Um, so that's also definitely a relevant concern for health research regulation, definitely a relevant concern for bioethics. But again, not the one I'm interested in. I'm interested in um how we ourselves as the subjects of um bioinformation might use that information to think about who we are to construct the idea of who we are so i think this is of all those three definitions i've given there it's the one that is 
most neglected, this kind of reflexive use, and potentially the most interesting. Uh, so that, that, that is interesting. So as I said in the introduction, you're coming at this from the perspective of uh, a bioethicist, because for me as a lawyer, you know, the first of your definitions was the one that had most resonance, the idea of information being identifiable. In, in the data protection legislation, we've got personal data, etc. So, But what I'm hearing you to say is that actually your, con- your, con- your conception of bioinformation is much broader and potentially richer than just how the law reduces it down to personal data from which somebody can be identifiable yeah yeah i'd say actually that kind of being identifiable is is it is the kind of necessary ground floor of my concerns because i'm interested in how we might respond to and think about ourselves differently when we encounter information that is identifiable in that in that sense that you very nicely described so it's when we know it's about us when we know the genetic test result is, is is relating to our own health risks. When we know that the, um, the neuroimaging data speaks to our own brain function. So it is about identifiable data in that basic sense. But then what do we do with it in this, as you, as you suggest, this kind of thicker sense of telling a story about who we are and understanding and making sense of that, that story? Mm. Yeah, so, there's, so there's, it's as if there, you've got the, the, the necessary but not sufficient um, notion of it being identifiable, i.e. about me in some sense, that's identifiability, but you're going beyond that looking at identity and what, it, what significance it has for our identity. That's exactly right. Exactly right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So what is it, do you think, at the moment that the regulatory uh, ecosystem is not capturing about that, that kind of um, interest that we have because certainly there's so much regulation around data protection and personal data and identifiability what do you think is missing from regulation with respect to identity yeah so that the attention that you've just described to identifiability and the concerns about that and the privacy concerns and the um, and so forth are absolutely important there's no sense in which that that isn't um, on under the research I've been doing that's not seen as important um, but that's again harking back to what I said a, a little while ago that's focusing on what others might do with it what they might do um, for good what they might do potentially for um, for uh, reprehensible reasons um, and what I'm interested in is what research participants themselves might do with the information generated by um, and used by um, health research and maybe um, and particularly questions about when, why and how they're given access to that information or they encounter it in various ways. And perhaps a kind of the most obvious example to give you here is that about um, policies for returning um, individually relevant research findings to research participants. So um, it's fairly commonplace now for aggregate research findings to be fed back to um, cohorts of participants as part of the kind of reciprocal respect for having taken part. But it's it remains um, a kind of policy decision for investigators and for funders and research ethics committees whether individual research findings will be fed back. Um, and it's becoming increasingly common that they are. But the kind of threshold for doing so is the clinical actionability of those findings most normally, um, and the seriousness of the health conditions they concern. Um, And there are kind of emerging suggestions in the literature, at least, 
that maybe there's wider senses in which the information could be relevant and kind of more personal utility. Um, and that's really interesting. But then we might think, well, it better be pretty important personal utility if you're going to put pour the resources and time into feeding back individual findings, if you're going to, in a way, kind of um, hijack the hijacks, maybe not the most proper word there, but take the, the main aims of research, which is the creation of um, information for the wider social good and the social value of the, the research findings. If you're going to put resources into feeding back findings, you, you better make sure you've got good reasons for doing that. And um, I think it's like interesting to look at here about whether identity construction reasons, what the participants might do with that, those findings, whether that is a good enough reason for um, diverting those resources to feedback. And I think it can be, not invariably by any means, but where um, the findings might have play a significant role in um, research participants' capacity to um, understand their place in the research project itself and what it means for their life at the kind of more micro level, but at a more macro level, what that information means for them, their conception of their, how their future will unfold, um, their relationships to their family members, um, their understanding of how their body works and how it might change and how they might encounter those changes. So I think those kind of, <clears throat> excuse me, those kind of wider impacts can't be overlooked as kind of just personal utilities that would be nice to have. They've got some real, real ethical weight and clout behind them. So that's all encompassed by what do you mean by personal utility of, from, from this kind of bioinformation as opposed to the clinical utility that tends to sort of frame what, what is required within the regulatory environments at the moment. And you're suggesting that in the, the clinical focus is important and often, you know, um, absolutely imperative that, that something is done, but you're suggesting that regulation doesn't yet pay sufficient attention to these wider interests, these personal interests, which impact on potentially your identity. Is that right? Exactly. So it's giving... It, taking the kind of rather amorphous, interesting and useful idea of personal utility, but populating one aspect of that, saying, well, here's here's a kind of personal utility that might really matter. So, yes, in answer to your question on that front, but not actually separating um, identity, potential identity value or indeed identity detriment um, from clinical actionability and clinical significance either. It's not it's not separate or discrete from those functions of the information because in many ways um, the seriousness of the um, condition you might be informed about through research findings whether actionable or not um, it could have meaning for how you understand yourself how you um, think about uh, relationships to family members who are for example similarly affected by uh, a disorder or condition um, so it is it overlaps with the with the clinical um, concerns as well, these identity concerns. It's about thinking about yourself as an embodied being with all the um, kind of capacities and vulnerabilities and um, and uh, kind of unfolding biological future that that implies. So how do we know when you know, the, the, the threshold for actionability for, for, for this this bioinformation when it's got personal utility how do we know when that threshold has been crossed because I might, I might just be curious to know something and it might not impact on how I see myself at all but is that enough or and if it's not enough what is the threshold how do we construct that threshold to know 
how a regulatory system should respond because this this, this has potentially quite far-reaching implications about what happens with data and who has access to them and who has to curate those data and etc so what how do you construct that threshold absolutely great question so um one of the motivating questions behind my research has been well you know why does identity why do impacts on our stories of who we are um the accounts we give the descriptions we give of who we are why does that matter at all does it matter um and and as you say is it is it just kind of nice to have is it just a something that we should be um uh apportioning resources to considerable resources to um so uh this is how this is how i came at it is quite often the um identity impacts of biodata or bioinformation um are kind of filter into kind of a polarized argument that in some fields has got a bit stuck so you've got on one side quite widely discredited but still with some kind of popular currency the idea that we need to know stuff about our bodies because that is essentially who we are it's kind of uncovering the bio truth about who we are and um although you won't hear that view much in the scholarly literature it's still present in kind of, kind of public discourse more more widely and then you've got why well, I said it's a polarized argument you've got the kind of flip side of that which is um a kind of saying well at best it's at best it's trivial or irrelevant to know things about our bodies because we're more than our bodies we make decisions about self-determining decisions about creating who we are which uh, may well involve rejecting aspects of our bodies rejecting the fact that we um are at risk of developing a particular disease later in life rejecting our biological sex whatever it is we kind of there's a there's a suspicion of biodefinition um and that it's an even stronger form the idea that it's um oppressive um or pernicious to suggest that people um can or should or ought to define themselves according to information about their bodies and um I'm getting to answering your question but so I think there's actually those those aren't the two choices that's either essentially defines us or is somehow um uh, oppressive and unwanted and this is the middle ground where narrative ideas of identity come in and narrative as more than just a nice metaphor but quite a um kind of strong normative framework where the stories we tell about who we are can go better or worse and by that i mean they can support us in navigating our lives and making sense of our lives and they themselves can be more or less intelligible inhabitable and meaningful for those occupying them and where the threshold getting back to your original question the threshold for thinking oh identity impacts are something we should be paying attention to is where bioinformation and the question of whether or not we get access to it makes a substantial difference to our capacity to make sense of who we are um find it meaningful and habitable um story to tell about who we are um so there's there will certainly be trivial and ephemeral effects that we might describe as narrative effects where briefly i you know i i try like trying on a kind of 
new outfit, think of a new way of describing myself, but then it's interesting and then falls away. But there's also information about um, serious health risks, about, for example, biological relatedness, that for some people, not for everyone, I'm not making a universal claim about any category of bioinformation, but for some people, um, that makes a significant difference to the story they tell about who they are. And we see this in the empirical, my own work is not empirical, but if we look at the empirical literature of the testimonies of people who have or have not received no results from uh, genetic testing or uh, psychiatric neuroimaging, um, we can see how deep and far reaching the implications are for their sense of themselves. So this is not just an ivory tower um, uh, nice idea about stories about ourselves. There's actually empirical evidence that supports this notion of narrative identity and its importance. Well, it's, so it, it, empirical evidence of narrative identity use, I mean, that's all going to depend. I mean, okay, so I think talking about narrative identity and not just as a metaphor, but in this kind of stronger, more prescriptive or kind of normative sense that a narrative can go better or worse and it needs some kinds of inputs and structures and um, ways of ways of being constructed to go better or worse. Um, I That's a concept I think helps us understand and steer a route through the kind of information is irrelevant, information is pernicious, um, and information is somehow weirdly essential. So it's a good conceptual construct for explaining the, um, the ethical value. Whether you can look and find that in the empirical literature is another question because the people you ask, the people who've undergone uh, testing for being a carrier for BRCA mutation, for example, um, and the the uh, social science investigators who've conducted those studies themselves may or may not use the framing of um, narrative identity. But what you can do, that's a long way of saying, irrespective of whether the language of narrative identity is used in those empirical studies, what we can see is people telling stories in their own framings and their own words where they don't always value um, receiving this information, but it really matters. It's not trivial. It's not a um, it's not a kind of nice to know or a little bit bothersome to know. Um, it frames how they understand their relationships to their families, for example, where there's a family history of a um, hereditary disease like BRCA related cancers or like Alzheimer's disease or Huntington's disease. Um, so, yes, the empirical um, evidence as I read it and I, and I am I am a non-empirical um, scholar myself. But as I read it, there's clear indications that this is not ivory tower and this is not this is not just some nice theory that that, you know, we could ponder that people really care for a reason that isn't just describable as clinical value of the information or just describable as, um, for example, uh, kind of preparedness for the future or some of the tools that are currently used to think when does information matter to people or not. We're missing something if we don't look at it and think, what's the identity significance? Okay, but we, that's always a potential, isn't it? If I'm if I'm a, a researcher with a, a, a bioinformation data set, and I, I'm convinced by your argument, I'm convinced by what um, the empirical evidence seems to be telling us that for some people, um, some of this information might might be impactful with respect to their identity. 
how does that translate into practice? What, what does that tell me as the researcher about what I ought to be doing from a, a responsibility point of view? Okay, so um, I think there's a couple of ways. Um, I say a couple. I think three ways um, in which it might make a real difference to how um, health research regulation or the conduct of health research by investigators might go. Um, the first is kind of the most basic, which is that it adds in uh, an important value or principle or interest into the suite of things that must be considered when the risks and benefits of conducting the research and various aspects and practices within the study, like return of research findings, like consent procedures and so forth, it adds in a dimension that ought to be taken into account. So it's now you know, it's it's absolutely built into the bricks and mortar to think about privacy concerns and to think about um, enabling and fostering the autonomy of research participants, for example, um, through consent procedures. So the first thing I'm saying is um, identity um, considerations need to be part of that toolbox of principles um, and interests that are brought to all those different aspects of designing and conducting a study. Um, the second is kind of kind of getting more granular than that is to think about how to handle the information produced. So that is partly, as I've talked about now, um, about how you know thinking about return of research findings, for example. But it's also thinking about how research question, what research questions are being asked and what kinds of information might be generated through a study. And then asking, well, yes, that might deliver, for example, substantial benefits in terms of insights for the conduct of precision um, medicine, but in um, dividing up populations, in redescribing people according to more precise susceptibilities, in distinguishing, kind of splitting and lumping people in the kind of parlance of um, categorization. Um, what might be some of the um, accompanying impacts in terms of the way people then um, are described and come to describe themselves? So it's thinking about what the unintended consequences of information generation might be. And then something we haven't talked about yet, kind of moving beyond solely bioinformation to the actual, the very conduct of research and the act of partici and participating in research. I think it also has really important implications about thinking about what it means for research participants to take part in a study. What is the nature of their choice to do so? What it, um, what, um, how is their identity changed through the process of participating? Um, and how invested are they and their sense of themselves and who they are and their values in the aims, outcomes and conduct of the study? So um, Mary Dixon Woods and Nina Hallowell and others have talked about um, research participants kind of enacting their, their moral values, their moral vision of themselves through their participation in research. And I think an interesting aspect of that is their their vision of who they are as particular kinds of individuals, how they are contributing to the community of BRCA carriers that they belong to, for example. Um, so what does this mean? This means that for um, 
investigators to think about building an identity as one of the values. And then that means thinking about the transparency of the aims of their study, communicating these and how they might change through the course of a longitudinal study to the participants. It plays into long running debates about appropriate models of consent and reconsent. And it plays into interesting questions about the duty of care of researchers to participants. Um, not just the duty of care in, in this context is often played out in to what extent are researchers also healthcare professionals in the conduct of health research, but also to what extent are they the stewards of, um, of people whose lives are being changed by participating in research. So that sounds as if that, 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 that might further collapse distinctions which are already collapsing between um, research ecosystems and care ecosystems and the kinds of responsibilities that we see in each of these. Because from, from, from what I hear you to say, it sounds like it, as a, if I'm a researcher, it's not sufficient for me just to identify their potential uh, narrative interests at stake here and then offer people a data dump of what I found out. There's a sense that there needs to be some facilitation of making meaning for people when, I, when and how I communicate what these, these, these data are telling us and, and the implications that might have for your identity. Is that, is that right? That sounds exactly right. So I think ex- exactly as you said at the start of that question, that this is, this is yet another signal that our hard and fast distinction between the, re- the domain of research and the domain of um, healthcare is, is porous and, in, and increasingly sometimes misleading. Um, and then, yes, so when I talk about care and you talked about kind of helping people understand, I think that's exactly right. There's, an, there's a need for that kind of transa- translational um, support um, in the in the research relationship in ways we might not have recognised before, maybe a role for something like the profession of genetic counselling, which is well established in um, yeah in in, in clinical genetics, um, which is non directive but supportive in in allowing patients to understand w- what test results might mean for them, whether they want to know them at all. There's maybe a role for that kind of professional skill set in health research teams. And in saying this, I'm abundantly aware that this has enormous resource implications um, that that may be in a competitive and and challenging um, uh, research funding environments just doesn't seem feasible. But I think it is something to bear in mind and something to aspire to. So, Emily, it sounds as if what you're saying that, that, you know, the implications of this, yes, they may have you know, uh, resource consequences on a project-by-project project basis, but there may be sort of wider systemic benefits from this, um, particularly in terms of demonstrating the trustworthy, trustworthiness of the health research regulatory environment generally, and also um, ways of showing participants and potential participants that their interests will not just be protected, but actually actively promoted if they choose to participate in future research. Do you think that's a fair comment? I absolutely do. I think it is part of, as you say, what part of a wider kind of cultural um, kind of practice-wide change within health research, where there that is that is already got momentum through investigating kind of new models or new approaches to um, uh, getting consent, um, new approaches to, um, for example, looking at IT platforms and ways that communication with research participants can be done in more um, 
uh, innovative and ongoing ways. So I think it's part of that suite of changes that is about exactly as you say, growing, um, engendering trust um, and earning trust in research participants and increasingly seeing them not as the objects of um, health research, but in the truest sense as as partners um, and, and, and yeah, the, everything that participant, the word participant implies. Yeah. Thank you, Emily. For the last question, I'm going to invite you to sort of step back a little bit and reflect on your role in our project as a bioethicist. Uh, because one of the um, paradigms we wanted to challenge with this project was a, a fairly pervasive view that regulation is a technical legal affair, top down. It's it's cumbersome, it's burdensome, and it's it, it's often problematic rather than facilitator and supportive. What do you think bioethical perspectives bring to all of us in helping to understand not just what health research regulation is, but also how it can be done better? Um. Yeah, so I think in a way, my part of my answer to this is, is a bit perverse because it's it's people have, may have have an idea that what bioethicists decide is is a kind of is a kind of top down um, instruction about what is right or wrong, good and bad, what shouldn't shouldn't happen, and I don't think that is necessarily or even ever where the contribution of bioethics is useful and appropriate it's as much to do with as all my ground clearing and concept divining at the beginning of our chat um make clear it's as much to do with um challenging and clarifying the kind of terms and parameters within which the debates happen and the legal and regulatory discussions um, um happen um so that's it's it's as much it's as much to do with that kind of conceptual work as anything to do with kind of do's and don'ts um and i think also as as liminal spaces project has illustrated in so many ways in so many different settings and at so many different points and in relationships between different actors that health research regulation in it in the kind of legalistic sense doesn't um doesn't isn't wall-to-wall carpeting it doesn't fill all the spaces there are gaps where judgments need to be made and principles rather than rules will apply. Um, for example, what fair and suitable consent looks like or um, how should the, just the, the very basic, how should the aims, um, benefits and risks of a research project be what, should be, what should be judged to be a benefit or a risk in the first place? All those things are not governed by rules, but wide open for populating um, in ways that require hard ethical thinking about what matters, what values and what interests are at stake and what, what what the moral goals of research are. And so bioethics has a role to help kind of, um, be a partner in so as i say not not the expert on what's good or bad but a partner in filling in those kind of more flexible or squishy spaces between the rules um and so kind of part of a team of conceptual and normative um part of a team and conversation about the right ways of conceptualizing the right way of thinking about what's good and bad amongst a number of actors and what bioethics definitely isn't is the kind of um post facto um policing or rubber stamping of the kind of 
of of doing the ethics, doing the job of the research ethics committee. So that research ethics committees, institutional ethics committees absolutely have an invaluable role. But bioethics is not um, identical with or exhausted by that role in any in any in any respect. Yeah, I like the idea of squishy spaces. <laughs> For listeners who are interested in hearing more about uh, Emily's work, reading more about Emily's work, there's already some publications from her out there on her website. And also at the time of recording this podcast, Emily is finishing up her monograph with Cambridge um, on exactly this topic. So watch out for that. But for now, Emily, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Graham. I enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to the Liminal Spaces podcast. To learn more about the project and to listen to the full series, please visit us at www.liminalspaces.ed.ac.uk. This has been a production of Edinburgh Law School at the University of Edinburgh.